You're listening to the latest episode of Unspun, a podcast by Population. This week, we're talking about regeneration and liberation with Dominique Drakeford and Whitney McGuire, the co-founders of Sustainable Brooklyn. This is part one of our two-part series. Don't go away. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome to Unspun, a podcast by Population. We are three sustainability experts unraveling what's holding us back from regeneration and liberation in the fashion and home industries. I'm Lauren Hill. I'm Danielle Arzaga. And I'm Catherine Tedrow. In this episode, we're thrilled to have a conversation with an incredible sustainability and social justice impact influencer, founder of Melanin Ass and co-founder of Sustainable Brooklyn, Dominique Drakeford. We'll talk to this true industry expert about the systemic dysfunctions of the fashion industry that have caused and continue to cause harm to Black, Brown, and Indigenous communities and the community building needed to reclaim the sustainability narrative through a new lens. We're here today with Dominique, who is bridging the gaps between the mainstream sustainability movement and targeted communities. She is at the vanguard, redefining the sustainable fashion industry. Her thought leadership on her blog, Melanin Ass, and beyond brings fairness to storytelling, championing the values of inclusive representation and informed responsibility. Through Sustainable Brooklyn's NY-based symposiums, crucial industry partnerships, and dynamic education on fashion, food, and wellness, she is actively evolving the landscape of sustainability. And Dominique, I've heard you speak on so many panels over the years now, (laughs) and I'd love to just hear what does sustainability mean to you? And I'm totally, totally messing with you. I don't want to hear that at all. I've heard you say it so many times. (laughs) What I really want to know is we've come to see you occupy a really unique place in the sustainable fashion space. And we'd love for you to just tell our audience a bit about how you came to be where you are and what it feels like and what it looks like for you. Thank you for having me not give a formal definition of sustainability. I appreciate it. I mean, that's a really good intro. Kudos. I think about my journey often, and it's just the notion of this beautiful idea. And it's almost like a surreal collection of moments and experiences, both big and small. And I and I know, you know, oftentimes when you say, you know, how did you get to where you are? I have my resume, you know, an environmental justice and sustainability that spans 15 plus years. And I could talk about, you know, my formal education with a bachelor's in what business environmental management and a master's from NYU and sustainable entrepreneurship in in fashion and sort of the various places I've worked from youth development specialist to outdoor educator and just various positions once I moved to New York. But I don't know. I don't find that shit really exciting. Like it's sort of the less glamorous trails of my life adventure that have kind of become the most poignant and most important to me in terms of how I got here and where I am today. It's like when I think about dressing up as Missy Elliott in high school or the moment my environmental law professor talked about how I have a world vision versus her other students who were just seeking green jobs. I think about like when I lost my first competitive chess match or when I made a couture gown made out of used condoms or 
when I first journaled about wetlands or did composting in elementary school, like all of these really, really almost defining moments that most people don't talk about. Like that's what has truly led me to where I am today and has built these characteristics of resilience and uniqueness and courage to go against the grain and and really stand up for what I believe in. So I just gave you the ultimate abstract answer of of all time. But to me, that's, that's how those moments of just personal development, of trying new things, of doing shit that your average Black girl from Oakland didn't do that I defined as sustainable, that's how I got to where I am today. Yeah. I love that. And I really appreciate you talking about the what you called the kind of more unglamorous parts of life that have put you in a location where you have a vision for change and sustainability, because I think we often get so distracted by credentials mm-hmm. and who's titles. Celebrated, titles, all these mm-hmm. things that like they really don't matter. And unfortunately, a lot of our solutions get focused around those things. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's when we end up missing people. You know, we all know that the fashion and home industries are notoriously exploitative and extractive. How is the legacy of colonialism and white supremacy holding us back from true sustainability? That's a big question. That's a loaded question, for sure. It is a loaded question. I mean, first, I want to start off by saying the fashion industry, I think, is the most challenging exploitive industry because there's so many inputs and outputs, and it's so much harder. We're so much more disconnected from the supply chain and the value chain, but every, let's be very clear, every industry is exploitive. It's part of mm-hmm. fashion industry is just one segment of the larger ecosystems that are, you know, operating. But I think it's so super imperative to think about how these systems were created and how they thrive. Like I almost feel like we talk so much about exploitation and extraction without taking time. Like they've become sort of like buzzwords similar to, you know, all the the things, circularity and and responsibility and all those things. I think we, we forget that there is a very, very real intentional system, white supremacist system of extractivism that was very much (laughs) created initially to keep initially for for Afro and Black bondage. And for me, I always define the system as having sort of three main pillars, and that would be public policy, marketing, and education in order to keep sort of those wealth and, and power relations and resources in command. Mm-hmm. But what's even more important when I'm thinking about a legacy of colonialism and and white supremacy is understanding that, uh, I mean, it's such, this is such a loaded question. Like I have so much to say about it that it's like, I have so much to say that I can't say anything at the moment. Yeah, no, I get that. I think it's also, it definitely is a loaded question and it's more like, how can it not be holding us back from true sustainability? Because that's the way the system was designed. Right. And to, to be very clear, too, the system was designed out of understanding that Black and Brown Indigenous people had a regenerative system that was working. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that needs to be 
very much clear. Like before chattel slavery, especially when we're when we're thinking about the Middle Ages, when when Europe had, you know, famine and poverty and disease throughout Africa, powerful, powerful, powerful kingdoms with, you know, organic farmers and sustainability experts. And especially if we're talking about West Africa, which was a big proponent in the transatlantic slave trade, sustainability and regeneration was like the it was literally the core DNA of culture and philosophy. So understanding that these systems were created in spite of sustainability systems that were already in place in melanated spaces. And so when we say, yes, it's there's this legacy of exploitation and extractivism, it did not come out of thin air. Like that, that was the core DNA with land and, and resources and intellectual property being transactional and being extracted. That was very, very, very strategic. And I think it's really important to understand that these strategies have been cumulative. It wasn't, it wasn't a history of, of one-off events. There wasn't, you know, it wasn't a silo here and a silo there. All of the way the mechanisms of the system work intercommunally, but also at, at a corporate and government and between country level has been very, very, very cumulative and circulatory. And so, yeah, I don't know if I would consider it that that's what holds us back because that's how it's Americanism has been, unless we're specifically connecting with Black and Brown Indigenous communities. Given everything that's happened over the last year, specifically with the pandemic and kind of the resurgence of Black Lives Matter in the public consciousness um, after, you know, so many deaths last year or killings of Black people, do you feel like we're at a transition or turning point where we kind of collectively can see that the system that we're operating in is inherently destructive and that you know, solutions building within that system are limited? That is a good question. I think, yes, I think, I think especially with all the things that happened last year, we're able to, you know, collectively see the truth more clearly. I mean, for me personally, it it hasn't shown me anything I didn't already know, but for many folks, I think it, it opened the blinders to, the way that the system operates and the way in which those systems justify and and legalize the exploitation and almost continue to you know per- perpetuate it however however i think that because of the way in which everything transpired alongside using social media as a tool for education and don't get me wrong it's it's a phenomenal tool i think there's still a lot of surface understanding of how the mechanisms of the system work mm. and for me and as i mentioned before again it's it's public policy it's education and it's marketing that are sort of the main levers and controllers of how of how i understand the system working Getting to the root of those three pillars is going to go so far beyond these movements of recognition and these movements of base level understanding of what's happening. 
And so <laughs> if I'm being honest and thinking, and, and I'm a realist, I'm an optimist, but I'm also a realist. If, if I'm thinking about the level of corruption that is the normalcy of Americanism, it's going to take, it's not as simple as tweaks to the system. It's going to take literal abolishment of the entire system. And if that doesn't happen, adjacent systems that are more than likely community-led would have to be the source of of how we move forward and really scale change Mm, at a very base level. (laughs) Unfortunately, I agree. (laughs) I think we would need to have these these parallel systems of community grassroots led movements that really reach the masses or the majority. And I I feel like our country is too divided right now to maybe make that happen in the, in the near future. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I'm at the end of the day, I'm always going to fight for solutionists who are working within the system, who are going against the grain of the system that like that has to happen alongside alternative systems absolutely but i also don't think we have a clear grasp on just mm. how much of a monopoly that neocolonialism plays in sort of our social not only our social pathology but again just the full economic and political power of how things are ran mhm I just think the the roots of the system at a fundamental level are so fucking deep and and broken and broken or, or never never yeah. were never were right. So they they never were right. And again, if we're if we're thinking about how the system was created, it was very much focused on an economic model. Breaking that economic model would mean would truly mean breaking that fucking economic model. And breaking that economic model also means breaking the psychosocial conditioning that comes with that economic model. So there's just there's so many parts to transitioning our cultural philosophies of Americanism. And absolutely, I'm again always gonna fight for fighting against the system and, and corporations and government and all of that. But a lot of my focus personally has been on sort of regenerative philosophies in adjacent systems and and how those are running and and how we're able to liberate communities just on a smaller scale Mm -hmm. um, so that we can eventually create infrastructure that is separate and apart from the ones that have existed for ages. Thank you, Dom, for talking about the problem. I know you probably go on panels a lot or are called upon to speak a lot about the problems in the industry. And we didn't want you to come on here just to have to talk about problems. So we definitely want to move to transition to talk about the solution. We're about to get into what it's going to take to address the legacies of racism and colonialism in the fashion industry. Something that stood out to us actually in your interview with DJ on The Root podcast had to do with operating outside of the constructs of white-centered success in the fashion industry. And we'd love to hear from you, Dom, what what does regeneration and liberation in the industry mean for you personally? And I hope this is a different feeling question than what does sustainability mean to you? (laughs) Well, actually, this lever of sustainability I love because for me, 
for me, regeneration is about Black liberation and Black sustainability that is completely separate and apart from the white gaze, from white constructs, from whiteness. And I think sometimes that's hard for people to conceptualize because as Black folks, we have to operate within the confines of whiteness. We have to operate in the confines of being intentionally made invisible and erased and ignored and devalued and, and you know, diminished always, despite our very real legacy in all the aspects of sustainability. So for me, regeneration is, is really tapping into our ancestry. It's really tapping into the fact that fashion legacy is, is very much rooted in the land from an Afro-Indigenous you know, point of view. Like if we're, if we're going back before white anything, colonial bullshit, if we're going before that, I'm tapping into you know, Egypt where flax woven linen was prevalent, where you know, in Ghana they wore kente and Mali there was mud cloth. Native American indigenous tribes had woven fibers, all of these aspects of sustainability, well, specifically sustainable fashion, but sustainability at large, which connected us to being inherent stewards of the land and, you know, where waste was not even a factor. Reminding ourselves on a side note that, again, waste is a very white colonial construct. So again, when I'm thinking about regeneration, I'm, I'm tapping into my ancestors. I'm tapping into ancestry, both in Africa, but as well as here in America. I'm tapping into the Fannie Lou Hamers who were just pivotal in creating alternative systems rooted in the land. I'm tapping into hip hop culture who have been regenerative and been resourceful despite the bullshit. I'm tapping into so many ways in which Black folks across the diaspora have created just an alternative ecosystem for happiness, for joy, for loving the land, for loving nature, for building community, for all the things that to me truly become the essence of of what sustainability is and what sustainability stands for. Because at the end of the day, for me, sustainability is synonymous, very, very synonymous with Blackness from a historical, but also a present day lens. I really love how you think of sustainability from this really holistic perspective of joy and self-care and I, I don't know. I feel like sustainability is often thought of just through the lens of like environmental you know, conservation, but it's really so much more than that. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's very white. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, it, and you know what? And, and having to be educated in these spaces, it took me a while to learn that that was very mm. white. <laughs> like, and not only was it very white, it was very, again, dismissive of people who <laughs> look like me. Like, there's been this whole dominant environmental and sustainability narrative, especially in the U.S., that's constructed and, and informed by whiteness, by, you know, Western European or European American voices. And, and it's like the 
co-option. I don't know if that's a word, mm-hmm. but the co-option and the manipulation of what sustainability, the essence of sustainability and, and environmentalism, like it's having to unlearn that because if you operate and understand sustainability from that land point, landscape, from that vantage point, it is very toxic. It is very harmful to Black and Brown Indigenous communities. And it continues, and a lot of people aren't going to like this, but it continues to perpetuate the global climate crisis. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, like it it's a it's a band aid on this solution. I feel like because you're not you're only you're only picking and choosing like a very small piece of of the whole story and the whole history, and it replicates the um, kind of the divide and conquer tactic absolutely. of colonialism uh, and white supremacy. Absolutely. Like you look at our approaches to sustainability and the the compartmentalization of mm-hmm. us as humans to our work of considering the environment to social justice, like those things in reality, in real life, they can't be pulled apart, but we've enforced these boundaries on things, which is exactly what the system of white supremacy and colonialism did. Yeah. Oftentimes I I think about like, if we actually adopted the black and brown indigenous principles of sustainability, where would we be as a community? Where would we be as, you know, where would we be in terms of how our climate, the health of our climate, our planetary health, where would we be? We would be in a completely different space. And so understanding that mainstream discourse, mainstream sustainability discourse, in my opinion, has done so much more harm than good is a hard pill to swallow. And not everybody, I remember when I first entered the space, and started talking about this before, you know, this context became popularized, the backlash of talking shit about communities who are seemingly doing good from a very savioristic land point of view was like unheard of. But yeah, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but yeah. (laughs) I'm like, we can go there. That's what we're here for. (laughs) Maybe this this might take us there by contrast, but what liberative and regenerative frameworks are emerging, but possibly you know being ignored still, that approach care for people and the planet that feel different for you? What I feel is one of the more significant, almost cultural narratives that are taking place. When it, I think it goes along the lines of what I was speaking about before in terms of alternative systems and, and folks who are, are creating local or hyper-local or intermediary local systems and, and ways to be circular that potentially go outside of the mainstream industry. I feel like so many folks are tapping into a different aspect of non-traditional education. So pulling from different authors, pulling from different blogs, pulling from different ancestral um, knowledge, pulling from different portals to build something collaborative with other people that are not necessarily mainstream. I feel like 
I just feel like there's there's a bunch of small movements taking place where people are doing their own thing and making an impact that can potentially be bigger than the industry. I mean, there's so much happening. Like if if you take what Wit and I are doing with Greenish, our team is it's us it's part of Sustainable Brooklyn, but we also have we're working with a small collective that's very passionate about implementing new safety standards as a tool for black consumers that's tangible and measurable and reliable and hopefully effective. So we're saying, you know what, we're not going to rely on X, Y, and Z to bring safety to black consumers in these spaces. We're going to look at safety as a measure of sustainability, get folks together who, who, you know, share our same values do studies within our community. So doing our own market research and having comprehensive reports on on how our community sees their safety being obliterated and how small businesses understand safety and then come up with a real ass tool to make sure that we are safe at a community level that we hope gets replicated all over the world. And so it's examples like that where I feel like folks are saying, I don't know, folks are just in in a space where they're creating new standards that bridge history and theory with practice and implementation because now we have a responsibility to create activation, right? I feel like we were stuck in this phase of Let's talk about history. Let's talk about theory. Let's talk about all these things, which is great. And that has to continue just because we've been conditioned to to not know the truth that that has to continue. But also coupling that with how are we going to implement this? And yes, we may pull resources from corporation or government, but the foundation of these smaller micro movements that turn into macro movements are going to be, we're getting back to the essence of community and starting things on the ground and really collaborating with each other in a way that we didn't before because social media created these barriers. So now it's like, okay, we're going to leverage social media. We're going to see how we can meet and, and reprogram infrastructure on the ground. And I think that's what's really exciting. I think that's where I see a lot of frameworks that are shifting. And that's where I see the emergence of change in it. And honestly, though, that philosophy goes back to civil rights movements. And so me, again, I'm from Oakland. So my brain is automatically like, this feels very Black Panther Party-esque. And so, yeah, just, just pushing the importance of our of our civil liberties and reprogramming shit <laughs> in a mm. different way. <laughs> I love that. I w- wish that the system we lived in recognized that work as the leadership that it is. And unfortunately, you know, that's not the the society that we live in. Right. One of the things I think about a lot is like this missed opportunity by the industry. And I don't want to make too many assumptions around like who has true intentions to see like real progressive radical change versus who's doing it for 
how it looks to their business. Mm-hmm. Like that's a whole mm-hmm. other conversation. Yeah. The industry is saying like, yes, we are committed to addressing all of these dysfunctions. It's such a missed opportunity to not leverage the power of community and community organizing that's already happening. Like people want to be a part of solutions building and they're often so cut off from it, whether it's like they're not perceived to have the right credentials, they're not in the right place of their career, or they're just not considered as people, as stakeholders in the in the industry. And so we end up having like all these conferences where it's the same people talking about the same solutions over and over again. Oh and not that, that solution, yeah. not that those solutions don't have a place, but they're not going to get us where we need to go. Yeah. Something exciting I just thought about, which is a spinoff from the Root podcast that Kestro and I have been working on and we're, you know, we're at the genesis of it. It's at its, you know, infancy, but we've been working on a new accountability standard specifically for fashion brands because I think a lot of what happened last year was the jargon around accountability. And so we're just excited to pull from the podcast and develop somewhat of an interdisciplinary interactive program where, where we'll be reprogramming how we develop brand value change from a decolonizing point of view. Mm. So, and again, it goes back to... It goes back to exactly what you were saying, just the importance of creating new standards, but also authenticity and and how do we how do we continue to challenge what's authentic and what's not and continue to have different members of community who have been doing this shit for so long immersed in the rebuilding of, of infrastructure. And that's something that I'm super passionate about. Just like if, if I had to describe myself in one word, it would be a bridge because I'm continuously trying to come up with creative ways to put people on, continue trying to come up with creative ways to connect different people, trying to come up with creative ways to make sure that black and brown indigenous folks have agency and stakeholdership whether it's at an industry level, if I have the agency to do so, or whether it's at a community level and we're trying to build some, some, you know, dope shit. But I think a big push is propelling those folks forward who have been doing this work and who are honestly the real vanguards in and across uh, sustainability. Mm -hmm. I love that. Thank you. I wonder, I wonder though, Dom, if you could just speak to a little bit about the new standard and what that means, like what your vision and what you and Kestrel maybe intend to do with that after, after the show has ended. Let's see. What can I say without saying Saying too much, too much. (laughs) It's, we want to put practice behind theories of responsibility and accountability for brands and make sure that black and brown indigenous liberation is at the forefront of the entire supply chain as brands are emerging as brands have already developed and and hopefully later on down the road as corporate brands try to shift their ethos with intention but um, yeah, we, we okay. really want to give legs to this idea of accountability, which I feel like 
has been floating in the ocean of bullshit <laughs> since the resurgence of Black Lives Matter movement. So, yeah. That's great. Well, we'll stand by. Then yes, stand by. It's, there's, we took on, it's, it's a big, big, big undertaking. Like we thought the route was a big undertaking. Mm. We're trying to create somewhat of a program, like a certification type program specifically for fashion brands it's gonna it's gonna um (laughs) it's a big undertaking that sounds really exciting actually thank you thank you thank you but we hope to get a lot of different folks involved and again pushing black and brown change agents black and brown solutionists black and brown educators scholars artists activists community organizers to the forefront of this activation Similar to what we did with the root, but making it very tangible and and ongoing uh, and ongoing. Yeah. And this isn't a one off like your brand. You know what happens to me and so many other folks is brands will contact you and say, oh, can you consult us about diversity and inclusion or can you speak at this event? So we want to go beyond sort of those one off bullshit approaches to equity and what Ibada would consider design justice. It's a long-term relationship that we want to build with brands for brands to really, really, really make a significant and impactful change that is going to include some history learning and some very intentional interactive seminars and, and things of that nature. So it should be exciting, but a, a long journey ahead. That's amazing. I love the there's such a need to move beyond the the box checking. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like that's very much a part of your framework. So we're definitely excited to stay tuned. But kind of moving to close, we were hoping that you could share the number one question you're asking the industry right now in order to achieve real change. Hmm. Uh, that's a good question. So let me see if I'm, this is going to sound like a dumb answer probably. Within the ecosystem of change agents, there's so many of my peers who are like educators and activists who are speaking directly to the industry, who are, you know, holding the industry accountable and dismantling the foundation of it. But personally, despite this whole synopsis I just gave you about this working with brands, I don't know. That's not my direct niche in challenging systems. Like I'm not asking the industry anything per se. It's just hard for me to conceptualize a question for the industry because a lot more of my focus is on building intercommunally. But if I had to actually answer your question, (laughs) uh, (laughs) that was like my, my gut answer is I'm not asking the industry for shit. But if I had to answer your question, to the industry, and I would say industry and government alike, it would be for eco-reparations and specifically eco-reparations for the Black community. And, you know, that can look like a number of different things. Like, I would be asking the industry, how are you implementing eco-reparations into your strategies moving forward? And that's comprise of what leadership roles, changing governments, wealth, redistribution, land acquisition, uh, 
prison abolishment, it, it would be how are we shifting the control of power and resources to Black folks and BIPOC folks? Great question. <laughs> Dom, you almost went there. You started talking about all of the people who are working at that level and dismantling the system. Is there anyone that you want to shout out as we're calling it an unspun hero? <laughs> someone who's unraveling the system, someone who's really challenging the current paradigm. All right, I'm going to give you a whole another Dom answer. <laughs> And I do get this a lot and I used to answer it straightforward, but I don't anymore as much. I don't know. I'm not going to necessarily identify a person. I think the it's unspun, right? Unspun heroes are just those that honestly may not have a social media following or tons of public recognition. I mean, it's the everyday folks on the ground who's starting community gardens or you know, implementing programs for youth development, fighting local water crises in their neighborhood. That mom who attends town hall meetings every day, it's the young person who opened up a vegan restaurant that focuses on community care. It's it's the teenage boy who didn't have you know, a lot of resources who's advocating for local policy. Like it's like, I can give you a list of people say from my 47 badass women of color influences, influencers, apologetically changing the landscape of sustainable fashion article. Or I can give you the list of folks from the root podcasts, which you should go check out <laughs> if you haven't already. They're all, all of our amazing should. change agents. Yes. Like I can give you a list, but for me, it's the people who I don't actually know by name who are doing the work day in and day out at such a hyper local level that you ne wouldn't necessarily be able to find them on Instagram. Or when you do find them, you know, it's not something that you're going to be like, oh my God, I need to follow this person because I'm quote unquote inspired. Um, those to me are are the real sort of revolutionary heroes who who really keep regeneration going at its finest. So yeah, that's my Dom answer. So I didn't, for, I didn't have a person. Couldn't <laughs> ask for a better answer. Yeah, beautiful. Well, thank, thank you. So Thanks so much. Thanks of so course. Much thank you for joining us. Thanks for listening to another episode of Unspun and for joining the conversation to create a new vision for the future of fashion and home. A huge thanks goes to this week's guest, Dominique Drakeford, for sharing her perspective on the industry. You can find her on Instagram at sustainablebk, at melaninass, or at Dominique Drakeford. To join the conversation, follow us on Instagram at wearepopulation and visit our website, wearepopulation.com. Unspun is mixed and edited by Compost Media Flow. Our theme music is by Richie Quake and cover art by Ryan Welch Designs. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.